Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. This is Dan Guttenplan. I'm with Matt Feld in studio. Matt, we're coming up on an exciting part of the season. MIA tournament is right around the corner, right before here. We'll get the pairings, what, after Memorial Day? Yeah, that Wednesday after Memorial Day. Yeah, what are what's the biggest surprise? We saw your top 10, MIA top 10 this week. It looks like Central Catholic is kind of catching fire here at the right time is are they kind of your surprise team going into the tournament yeah central catholic's been really good weymouth's been tremendous i mean weymouth coming into the year had a lot of talent and and joe pelucci the head coach there was pretty excited about his team but they've certainly put it all together way more than i think even they expected i think they're now 16 and 4 heading into the final two games of the season so across the board i mean franklin's still the number one team in the state but it should be a really really exciting tournament particularly now that it's nice weather outside (laughs) yeah yeah i'm looking forward to it Over the last week or so, we've had a lot of the prep tournaments, and our guest today just played in his prep tournament or coached in his first CNEPSBL tournament with Phillips Andover. It's Chris Powers. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you stepped into a a really unusual situation at Phillips Andover this year because it was a, a loaded team. Thomas White is probably one of the best high school prospects we've had in New England in at least a decade. And Phillips Andover had a really strong history of success over the last decade under Kevin Graber. What was that first year like for you? Or how has it been at Andover compared to your previous stop at Pingree? Because you've been in the in the New England prep school scene, but I think Phillips Andover is a little bit of a different deal. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It wasn't an unusual thing for KG to step away last fall. I think the idea was I was going to come in and be his assistant, which I was really excited about doing. He and I had coached against each other for years, so we had a had a good relationship. So I was excited about that. But as you said, the program's been tremendous for a number of years, and he did an amazing job building the program and the culture to the place where it is today. And uh, the kids, the kids are talented and terrific to be around. Coach, what were kind of your expectations coming into the year, both for the team itself, but but also just how you thought that it would go organizationally or how you felt like you would be able to kind of handle the challenge that, that came with coaching at Phillips Handover? Yeah, you know what? Stepping into a new situation, you never know what to expect or or how to handle things or how the kids are going to embrace the change that is inevitable, right, with a new person taking over. And I think I was I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised that how well the kids just moved right in it, right? They have great work ethics in place and they were they were super helpful for me, getting me up to speed with the way the league is and operates. And it's very competitive, as you guys know, and I appreciated all the input and the time they spent with me in the off season to help get me up acclimated, right? And get to know them a little bit so we could hit the ground running. I think coming in expectation wise. It's it's a lot of get to know you stuff, and then it's like, out of how do my systems and KG systems how did they mesh and how are they different and trying to not to make too many changes in year one, right? Because the the program had been super successful, so it was a matter of how do I start to instill some of the things that that I value as a coach and and how those things fit in with the way the program had been set up previously. Yeah, and it was it's a. As you said, it's a super competitive conference now, I think, or the league might be the best of any in New England, I would say. If you looked at the last weekend, the tournament, Worcester Academy won it, and then Dexter and you guys, 2-3, those are very proud programs, really strong schools, and a lot of D1 commits. If if I went down there on Sunday, and it's just a game after game after game, the guy on the mound's going to a D1 school, one through five in the order, all D1 commits. It was crazy how much talent was on the field. How is it different between Pingree, who plays in the EIL, 
And then this year with Andover and how do you say it? Synepspol or how do you pronounce that conference? Or... <laughs> I don't know how you pronounce that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's very different, right? Like you said, that the talent level in the, the Central New England Baseball Prep League is incredible. Every, every week, every game, you're seeing pitchers who are committed to Division One. You're seeing lineups that are super deep. Both Dexter and Worcester's lineups are deep and as is Deerfield's and, and every game you're seeing their best, right? And they're going to get their best and your guys have to be ready. And I think the biggest difference looking at the way Pingree's program is and the way Andover's is, is that depth in lineup in the, the pitching called quality of pitching that you're facing day in and day out. It doesn't mean there aren't good pitchers that, that the smaller schools face because there are, and there are some good ones. It's just not as many, I think is probably the biggest difference, but the lineup's the lineups are pretty impressive. There is no soft outs and pitchers really have to be good with location and they have to be good with their pitch selection else mistakes get hit regardless of who's throwing. So it's been really Im- impressive to see see the, the depth of this league. Coach, as you kind of have gone about the, the season, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but how you and KG systems would overlap or, or maybe be different with, with one another. What are some differences and similarities that you noticed maybe about playing style or even just philosophies on the mental side of the game? that you sort of grasped onto and realized throughout the course of the year? We're both defensive heavy guys. The, that that understanding that if your defense is taking care of the baseball well, your pitchers can pitch with confidence and attack the strike zone. And and that, that makes the game move along, right? That's challenging hitters, making sure balls are put in play, making sure you're not having deep counts. And I think that that philosophy was very similar. I think he's famous for the the running the running game that he developed in his taken now onto the pro level. And that's something that I certainly was not nearly as skilled at. And so that's been very cool for the kids to help teach it to me and help me understand the way it's used and and how it works. And certainly I've been able to talk to him on a regular basis to get pointers about using it as well. And I think, you know, kind of those things where we are similar. And then I think I tended to be a little more focused on hitting and hitting philosophy than maybe he was, but I don't know that for sure. That's just what I'm what I'm thinking here now, looking back on it. But I think overall, our, our systems are pretty similar in that it's definitely a defensive first philosophy. I give you credit for going in with that humility and being willing to learn in your first year and leaving it up to the players to teach you some things about the running game. A lot of coaches, you don't see that from you. It's I'm the boss. We're going to do it my way or the highway. So I give you credit. <laughs> wanted to ask about the recruiting piece of it. And I think with prep schools, it's changed a lot during the pandemic, even in the last three or four years where a lot of kids are kind of looking to extend their prep school career, maybe do that PG year to get an extra year. How has the recruiting compared to when you were at Pingree? And I just feel like at Andover, everybody wants to play college baseball. It's not one or two kids per class. It's eight kids, 10 kids per class. What's it been like that to see that shift since the pandemic? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think more and more you're seeing kids who do want to reclassify, whether it's to repeat a junior year or to PG, like you mentioned, and those numbers seem to be growing. I know it is different, right? Kids do want to come here. Kids do want to play at Andover. And I think the, the challenge for for us is it's it's not an easy place to get into, right? There are high academic standards and that makes it challenging for for any coach, right? And and all the schools are in, in a similar boat. Um, which is a which is a nice thing. So so you're getting kids who are invested in not just their baseball, but in their academic pursuits as well. And I think on the back end, that certainly helps them to get recruited on the college front. Coaches know and feel comfortable knowing that if they're coming to take a look at and spending some time with our players and and most of the players in our league, they know 
chances are they're going to get admitted and they're always going to be academically eligible when they get to the next level. And that's that's one stress relief off of any coach's plate for sure. Coach, Dan just kind of alluded to it, but the uptick in, in kind of the recruiting side of things since COVID and, and again, the reclassification that comes with it. How do you see maybe the NCAA recruiting rules changing now? Now there's no longer allowed to be communication between college coaches and prospective student athletes until September 1st of their junior year. Do you think that's going to have any ripple effect on down as it pertains to, to prep school? Yeah, I think still coming out of the, the pandemic, right, there still were a number of guys at the collegiate level who got those extra years of eligibility and kind of, at least in, in my eyes, painted up a backlog of players, right? There is guys who were there for five and six years and it made, I believe it made it tougher for the guys coming out of high school. And so, and I think that that helped, right? Drive the numbers going up in reclassifications in PGs. And I think going later into a, a kid's high school career, I think is helpful in my opinion. You'll see some maturity, right? When they're, when they're younger, they're still maturing, they're still growing, they're still developing. And after seeing a couple years of high school ball and, and playing on those competitive levels, I think uh, it'll make a uh, the recruiting process may be a little stronger for the colleges on the college front because they'll have a bigger picture of their work to look at. And when I think on the, the kid front, I think it takes some pressure off of the kids where they feel like they have to be playing 60, 70, 80 games during the summer and as well as their high school season just to get seen enough so they can have those conversations earlier on. Now I think they'll be able to focus more on skill development and things like that as, they, as they're going through those first couple of years and still getting out to the showcases that they want to and, and certainly helping their high school teams as they as they grow. And I think it gives them more opportunities to refine skills before they're really under the gun for the college process. Yeah, one one of your players, obviously, who had the, his pick of the litter when it comes to college, the college selection process is Thomas White. We spoke after the his performance in the league championship game the other day. And it, the one thing that sticks out for me is it's just remarkable that that's really the first time in his entire prep school career that he that he got hit hard like he's you said his ERA this year was 0.36 last year I think it was 0.25 or something like that it's just incredible to go through an entire career and have that happen once I bet it had to be a shock for him it had to be a shock for everybody in the field and on the bench while that was happening what did you learn from him through that experience learn about him through that experience yeah, he's a he's a competitive kid and he wants to put his do his best every time he sets foot on the field, whether it's pitching, obviously, or whether he's at bat or playing first base. He expects a lot of himself. And I think for, from my perspective, as a team, you want to always try to support your pitchers however you can, whether it's getting runs early or keeping guys in base and extending your offensive half of the inning so he can rest and gather himself. And I don't think as a group collectively, we did a great job on on that game on Sunday. But him as a him as a person, as a player, he's a team first guy. He wants to do what's best for the team. If if I had said, hey, Thomas, you're going to pitch one inning, you're going to come out, he'd have been cool with that. If I said, hey, you're going to DH today and you're not going to pitch, he'd have been great with that. Whatever it takes to help the team is the type of kid and player that he is. And that's something that I think is a, a terrific trait for him as a, as a person as he continues to grow and moves on to the next level of his baseball career. Can you talk about juggling that aspect of it? Because I've talked to coaches and seen coaches have to handle players of that profile before at the high school level, and it's certainly a unique circumstance in a in a positive way. I'm just curious, from your standpoint, I feel like it's only natural to feel pressure, not just based on the performance, but of course, kind of the the media hype and the and the extra personnel, I guess, that's around the program. How did you have to to navigate that and kind of walk that line? 
I think for the most part, I look at it as my role was, how can I make the experience for him? It's close to a typical high school experience as it can possibly be, right? He knows, and he's always had outside scouts and people looking at him, watching him from the time he was 12, 13 years old, all the way through. And so for him, I think he's done a great job blocking out the noise and, and doing that. But part of my role was making sure that Hey, when it came time down to do his work and things like that, there weren't distractions and people weren't affecting the way he went about his training, his preparation pregame through his bullpens and things like that. And then helping control some of the communication, whether it's getting scouts and, and, and people who want to do interviews and things like that to work through me or work through our athletic department. That was part of our role to make sure that all the extra eyes on him didn't impact the way he perceived or experienced his season. How do you think he's feeling now heading into this summer? He's, he's, he's got so much that every high school player would love to have. He's got the Vanderbilt commit, <laughs> his potential first round pick. But it's also, I can only imagine how stressful it is when you're, it's, you're making a decision at the age of 18 that not a, many of us would want to make at this in our adult lives. It's such a hard decision to make. Is he holding up okay or do you think he's exhausted or how, how do you think he's mentally going into this whole process? Yeah, I think his mindset has been, at least in my opinion, has been that I'm going to enjoy what I'm going through right now. It was focused on enjoying the time with the group of teammates that he's been with for quite a while and and enjoying the, the typical senior things that you get to do when you graduate in high school. And then once you get through that process, then we'll then we'll move on to the next step, which would be seeing what happens in the draft and then having to make that decision whether he's going to turn professional or head to Vanderbilt to amazing choices, right? That I think everybody would love to have. I don't think it, I don't think you can go wrong in either one. I think, I think it's trying to enjoy being in the moment and being able to reflect back on his high school career and program with pride, right? And I, which I think he has a lot of pride in our baseball program. How would you describe the relationship between the baseball program and the rest of the school at, at Phillips, obviously a, a school with tremendous pedigree and reputation, well belong, it's well beyond its athletic programs, but how would you describe the relationship between the baseball team, the athletic department, and and the rest of the school in general there? I think uh, as with all the programs here, I'm fortunate enough, I get to coach football as well here. Yeah. So I get I get to do double duty season. So I think uh, I think the school does an incredible job supporting all the athletic programs from top to bottom, from the rec programs, intramural stuff, to the, the, the varsity programs like ours. They do a super job. Our facilities are top notch. We don't, we don't want for anything, which is, which is a great thing in our, but any given day, you will see faculty out watching our games, which is awesome, right? Our field's right in the center of campus and on a beautiful spring day, like it finally has been recently. There's plenty of people out from the community to come and see us play. And that's something that the kids appreciate as as you spend more time in schools. Kids notice when faculty members are out there or administrators are out there or parents are out there, obviously. And they appreciate, they appreciate that, right? Because they spend a lot of time with those people over the course of their school days and academic academic career. So it's it's always nice to see a community supporting each other in all different ways. So I think as a whole, the school does an amazing job supporting our baseball program, as well as all the athletic programs on campus. Yeah. I mean, and they're beautiful facilities too. While just walking around the campus is a, yeah. a fun thing to do. Wanted to talk to you about some of the other players that stood out to you this year, either in the Central New England Prep School Baseball League, obviously Dexter and Worcester Academy are just loaded with Top guys, but you play a tough schedule even outside the league. Who are some of the guys that really stood out to you this year that you said, wow, that was impressive? 
Yeah, Mav Rizzi, the the pitcher from from Worcester, Worcester yeah. UConn. He's he's a talented kid. Got to see a great duel between him and Thomas White twice. Right, once at Polar Park, where we had the pleasure of playing early on in the season. It was cold as can be, but the two of them it was a great pitching duel to see the two the two of them going up against each other. Matt Conti, the catcher from Dexter, is outstanding. He is a great receiver. His skills behind the plate are incredible, and that's that's only part of who he is. Right, he swings a great bat, and so I think. As I look at it, there are players on every team, and I hate to leave people out, but there are a number of guys on every team, and and it is it's fun to see. It's fun to see the talent within these programs. It's been a, certainly has been a great experience for me thus far. Going forward, coach, now that the like now that the season's I guess in the rearview mirror, and you turn towards the turn towards the summer, as you mentioned, you're part of the football set. You you do coach football up at Phillips Andover. How fast do you though start turning towards and looking towards the next season? So we have, we're lucky. We have one more game, right? Yep. So we have our Andover extra day this Saturday. So yep. we get to, we got this one last <laughs> one extra week that I think some of the other, other schools don't get. So we're lucky that way we get to stay together for another week. But as soon as our season ends, we'll do our end of the year activities. And then, you know, part of my role is getting out and seeing players in the area and, and, and getting my eyes on people that hopefully will have interest in wanting to pursue playing at Andover, as well as seeing my guys that are on our team play for their summer teams. So I'll spend a lot of time on the fields like that for through the month of June and July, and then we'll turn the page to football after that. Yeah, I actually saw the other day, it was kind of a Nick Saban move on your part. It was it was like the day of the league championships and a player announced his commitment to go to Andover next year as a, for a PG year, I think, and you had retweeted that. And I was like, man, recruiting season never stops. It doesn't matter if it's the weekend of the championship or what's happening. But yeah, how do you see it? What is your vision for the program here over the next few years as you really look to put your stamp on it? Well, I, I see it as we're going to keep building on what, is, what has been the foundation for this program. We're going to look to be run run well, run the base as well, put pressure on defenses. And, but overall, you'll see us continue to be a team that values playing great defense and not giving extra outs and, and taking care of the ball from, from start to finish, as well as continue to hopefully develop pitchers who can challenge and, and be successful in a league that is competitive as this one. I think I'll continue to look for guys that, that can do the job like the, the guys that have preceded them as we move forward. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, Chris, we usually do a three up, three down segment where we just do kind of like three general interest questions about baseball, how, how you fell in love with the sport. Would you be up for that? Absolutely. Sure. All right. Let's go to our producer, David Yaz, for our three up, three down segment. Three up, three down. Here comes producer Dave in from the bullpen. Wait a minute. Where's my walk-up music? We got to get on that. Okay. Here we go. We will, should we start with our guest, yes, Dan? Yeah. Okay. All right. Our coach. Question number one, three up, three down. Shohei Otani, presently, is the only so-called two-way player in Major League Baseball. Ten years from now, how many will there be? Ten years from now, there will be zero. I think he is an anomaly. And I would, as somebody that has seen the change in the way pitching has gone from the two-way guy, even at the high school level, to the how much time they put into taking care of their bodies and arms, it's I can't see it being repeated. But you never know. I'd like to be surprised. Dan, what do you think? See, I would have gone the other way. I think that if there's more of a trend now of allowing college guys to continue to play as two-way guys. So I'd say maybe, I don't know, no, I don't think anyone's going to do it at the level Otani is doing it, where he's basically the best pitcher and the best hitter or up there in top five. 
But uh, I think it'll happen more. We saw Reggie Crawford last year at UConn. They let him continue to be a two-way guy. He's going to look to do that professionally. I think you'll see a few, maybe three or four. Uh, I'm also going to say zero. I just think the strain on the body is just so great when you get to the professional level that it's almost impossible for someone. I think guys have tried in the lower level minor leagues. The Dodgers had a player, Tanner Dodson, a couple years ago who actually led the Cape League in hitting and through 95, and he ended up getting Tommy John, unfortunately. I just think the strain on the body when you get to that level is is so high that even if you're talented enough to do it, the fact Otani can do it every day pretty much is incredible is, is it possible we'll see more sort of in between there there have been instances of this where of course where a position player pitches but could we see more instances where a positional player pitches effectively in in spot situations dan what do you think i i feel like you always see those guys throwing like 65 when they come <laughs> in <laughs> off the they come in yeah, from left field the, yeah. yeah or they're trying to knuckleball out no, I don't. I don't. I can't see like you put in your shortstop. He's throwing 96 on the corners. I don't think you're going to see much of that. But I, you're making me think I'm disrespecting Otani because I'm saying other guys can do it. He does. I have so much respect for what he's doing. Maybe maybe zero is the right answer here. All right. Well, we can move on. Question number two and three up, three down. Matt, we'll start with you. We'll go the reverse order. Matt, what's the favorite favorite baseball hat you've ever had? Oh, the Oakland A's hat from like the 80s and 90s that have the gold brim and the green top, I guess you want to call it. I think those used to be so sweet, like when Dennis Eckersley used to play for the Oakland Athletics. Did you have a handlebar mustache when you were wearing Uh, it? I did not. I I still can't grow facial hair at 26. (laughs) Dan? My favorite Phillies, well, my my favorite team growing up was Philadelphia Phillies. Their favorite uniform was the baby blue with kind of like the maroon pea. So I had a hat like that that is my favorite baseball hat. Greg Luzinski was just poured into that uniform. The bull. Yep. (laughs) Coach, how about you? Favorite hat? So as a diehard Red Sox person, I loved the 70s red hat, red blue visor. But favorite hat would be Montreal Expos, I think. I loved loved the look of that that they had for going for a while. And a lot of of people don't know that if you look carefully at that, it's, you know what it spells? It's actually got three, it's got... If you picture it's a it's a script M, but it's actually an E, an M in the middle, and a B at the end, Expos Montreal baseball. It's a great hat. <laughs> know that. That's awesome. Yeah. The old I used to raise your hand if you had one of those souvenir helmets the Red Sox yes. had that George Boomer Scott used to wear on the field for some <laughs> reason. Yeah, for sure. All right. Coach, we'll start with you on the final question three up, three down. What's the best minor league stadium you've ever been in? Well, that's a super question. I went to the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes not 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 that long ago. It was amazing. You were right down on the field. The players interact with you during the game. It was a single A team. I don't even know if they they still are affiliated with anybody. Single A team of the Dodgers back then, but it was an awesome experience. Is it possible they used to be affiliated with the Angels? I have this could be could uh, yeah, be yeah, I have could this be. memory of. Brendan Donnelly pitching for Rancho Cucamonga and then the next year being the hero of the World Series. I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> that could be. Uh, Dan, your favorite. Uh, the, if you haven't been to the one in Manchester, that's a really nice stadium. My favorite, though, is uh, well, I was I'm born. I'm from Wilmington, Delaware. They had a minor league affiliate in Wilmington starting when I was like 10 years old. So not only have I been to that stadium at a formidable time in my life when I was like, I can't believe we have a minor league team. This is so awesome. So I'm probably remembering it a little differently than it really is. But at the time I was like, this is the best stadium I've ever been to. I played in the stadium. So that's going to be my favorite. I went to college in Philly and we were sitting around as we would do watching 
the movie Bull Durham one day, and my friend said, it would be cool to have, like, right here in Philly, a little minor league baseball team to go. And I said, we've got a major league baseball team. It's like five minutes away from here. We'd never go. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that was the days of the vet. So maybe that's why. Yeah. Matt, your favorite minor league stadium. When I was with the Cubs, we shared a minor league stadium with University of Oregon. So the Eugene Emeralds played out in Eugene, and it was a beautiful stadium. We used to sell out every single night, and the facilities were, were off the charts. Oregon's athletic facilities are off the charts. So the, the combination of the environment, because... If you're living in Eugene over the summer after all the college kids go home, there's not much to do besides go to a minor league baseball game, I don't I don't think, on top of the weather and also the facilities, like I said, because the college kept them state-of-the-art. It was a really, really cool facility. Well, Oregon must be a mecca of minor league baseball with the, the legend of the, the Portland Beavers as well. Portland Beavers, yes. The Hillsboro Hops are there where the Diamondbacks play. And then actually up in Vancouver where the Blue Jays play, the, the Vancouver Canadians, a really, really cool stadium also. Well, all three of you have successfully passed three up, three down, and your reward is you all get a soft serve ice cream presented in an upside down baseball helmet souvenir. Thank you very much, guys. Terrific. Thank you. Well, thanks to Andover coach Chris Powers for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. 